Let us open our Bibles to Romans, the fourth chapter. Romans chapter four. We shall not make much progress in the chapter today because we must make sure that we have a sufficient foundation in our knowledge of Abraham because the whole chapter is about Abraham. The Jews that would have heard this epistle read to them in the church at Rome would have had a thorough understanding of Abraham. He was the father of their nation. He was the father of their religion and their faith. They would have had the scriptures read to them from the books of Moses many times. They would have known all about Abraham. We need to make sure that we understand some things about Abraham so that we can rightly divide the scriptures and understand the doctrine of justification, which is what Paul is attempting to prove to Jewish legalists by appealing to Abraham in chapter 4 and Adam in chapter 5. He has already laid the foundation of sin in chapters 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. Then he proves that justification is by the grace of God, freely given through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, laid hold of and claimed by our faith without the works of the law in the rest of chapter 3. So that the conclusion was made in verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. A man is declared to be a righteous man, and the evidence of that righteousness is visible to any that want to look. If he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, as verse 22 and verse 26 say, without any works of Moses' law. Now to further prove this to Jewish legalists that they were wrong, he is going to take apart the father of their religion and the most important figure in the Jewish national culture. He's going to take apart Abraham in this respect. He's going to show that Abraham was justified by faith without the works of the law of Moses and without the ordinance of circumcision given to Abraham 15 years later after he was justified by God. But unless you know some of the details of his life, unless you know some of the statements about Abraham, you can't appreciate all that the New Testament has to say about him. In the first verse of Romans chapter 4, What shall we say then? That Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. Since I have put you Jews and Gentiles on the same plane, condemned and guilty before God, since I have shown that you Jews and Gentiles are justified by Jesus Christ the same way, the objection is going to come up and questions are going to arise about Abraham our father. How was he saved? How was he justified? How was he declared righteous before God? How was God's righteousness upon him? And so we have all of chapter 4 on the subject of Abraham to undo the false confidence that the Jews had in him. What shall we say then that Abraham our father? At this point, Abraham is not the father of the Gentiles. At this point, he's the father of the Jews because Paul is still addressing them. In other places, he will say that Abraham is the father of us all by faith. The issue here is to find out what he accomplished in his life in the flesh. Without the blessings of the Spirit of God and without faith, what did he accomplish? What did he find? And verse 2 is going to say, if he accomplished anything or found anything by his fleshly efforts, he hath whereof to glory. But there's no room to glory before God. And the Bible denies it anyway by saying in verse 3, that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. If you make any notes in your Bible 
and I know it's in your center column reference if you have center column references, Romans 4.3 should have attached to it Genesis 15.6. Because I never want you to forget 15.6. 15.6. Chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. So that you will understand that there were many faithful events in Abraham's life before chapter 15. But it's just one that God pulled out as an exemplary event to show that he was a righteous man. And it was counted to him. It was accounted to him. It was reckoned to him. It was imputed to him. All four words are synonyms, meaning it gave the grounds and the evidence for God to declare Abraham a righteous man. God did not offer righteousness to Abraham on the grounds of him believing the promise in Genesis 15. Abraham was already a righteous man. But it's a singular, it's a, it's a signal event and a singular event in the life of Abraham that God focused on, pulled out, and made that little statement by the Holy Spirit in Genesis 15:6. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's no more significant than the one about Phinehas in Psalm 106, verse 31, where Phinehas, for his righteous judgment of two fornicators in the presence of the congregation of Israel, the Lord said he counted it to him for righteousness. It wasn't that that made Phinehas righteous any more than it made Abraham righteous, but it was the evidence that both of them were righteous men, for out of faith and fear toward God, they did something. They believed an impossible promise. And we have impossible declarations made to us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, born of a virgin, died on the cross, was buried by the Roman governor and sealed in a tomb, but rose from the dead and sits at God's right hand. Believest thou this? If you believe that, righteousness has been declared from heaven by the authority of God's Word. Because if you believe this, you are righteous, you'll never be confounded. You don't believe that in order to be righteous. Are you going to tell me that an unrighteous, unjustified, unregenerate man is supposed to believe in order to become righteous, justified, and regenerate? This was late in Abraham's life. And these are the things we want to learn. And these are the things we want to be established in. God did not offer anything to Abraham in Genesis 15. He declared what he was going to do. And Abraham believed it. And it was counted to him for righteousness. Sometimes Abraham didn't believe him. Sometimes after Genesis 15, on the very same issue of him having a son from his own bowels, he didn't believe it. Yes, he'd laugh about it. Praise God. We're not going to get excited and thank God for Abraham's weakness in his faith, but we're thankful that God recorded his weakness in faith because it comforts our hearts. Amen. Everybody wants to blame poor Sarah for laughing. There's another person in Genesis 12 through 24 that laughed first. It was Abraham. Everyone wants to blame. All my life as, as a child, I remember hearing about Sarah laughing. Abraham laughed first after he was justified by faith. Well, did he become unjustified? Praise God, no. Look at Romans 4.3. This is what we've got to understand, and this is why I'm taking the time to back up and look at the life of Abraham. 4.3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. This is the event in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham said, I don't have any children, and I want one. God said, come outside and count the stars. Your seed is going to be that numerous. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Genesis fifteen six. 
Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see the importance of this event in Abraham's life for our theology. This is how we learn. You want an example of salvation? I'm, we're not going to bring some football player from Clemson University to come in here and tell you how he got saved. We don't even know that he is saved. We haven't seen the book of life and neither has he. We're not going to bring anyone in here to tell you how he got saved. The example in the Bible that is spoken of the most is Abraham. How did Abraham get saved? Was he begging at the altar for Jesus to come into his heart? No, he was at the altar of false gods in Ur of the Chaldeans when God said, get up off your knees, you pagan idolater, and come into a land that I will show you. And God did it with enough force and authority that Abraham said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? We are not given the details except the Bible tells us God chose Abraham out of a family of idolaters in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans and he came forth. He's the example we want to read about. Galatians 3.6 Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was counted in Romans. Now it's accounted in Galatians 3. You accountants need to do some counting to make sure your accounting is correct. Because you need to do some reckoning with the numbers on the papers in front of you on a computer screen. Reckoning. Reckoning. Accounting. Counting and imputing in the Bible use of those words is the same thing. The evidence so that a declaration can be made that such and such a person is righteous. God looked at the faith of Abraham and said, You're a righteous man for believing a promise that is impossible by all natural considerations. Because he didn't see any possibility of having a son at that point. Look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2, this event is so important that we must understand its importance by me showing you how often this is appealed to in the Bible. This, this little tiny event out of the 12, 13 chapters that are dedicated to Abraham, this one verse is constantly referred to because righteousness is declared for each of us on the evidence of our faith. Not the works of the law. Not the works of the Arminian system, not the works of the Church of Christ system, not the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic system, but on faith as the evidence of eternal life. James 2.23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, James 2.23, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. You can go look up the definitions of the word impute, count, account, and reckon, and they all mean the same thing. The measure of a person is taken, the measure of a thing is taken, and a declaration can be made about it. This is the evidence of righteousness. There's the three examples in the New Testament. Oh, it was so important. Look at Romans 4.1. It said, back to Romans 4.1, it says that we need to ask and find out, Paul's writing to these Jewish mixed Audience with Greek Gentile proselytes. What shall we say then that Abraham our father? The father position of Abraham was so important to the Jews. They, They appealed to it all the time. They rested on it. Notice that Paul has already addressed the fact that they rest in the law. Chapter 2. Chapter 4, they rest in the fact that they were of the blood, the lineage, the family, the descent of Abraham. And because the Bible had said 
your seed is going to be blessed, they assumed that meant every natural descendant of Abraham was going to go to heaven. Now, they didn't really think that if you asked it closely, but they started off with that. Paul's going to correct that because he's going to point out Abraham had more than one son. But that doesn't, we don't get that until what chapter? Nine. In chapter nine. But we're going to get there. Because the Jews trusted so much in their relationship to Abraham. When John the Baptist came on the scene baptizing, and the Pharisees came out of Jerusalem to, to see his authority and what he was doing, remember what he said to them? Don't you dare think within yourselves that we have Abraham to our father. Because God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. That doesn't mean a thing. And that was John's, John the Baptist. He had a way with people, didn't he? He knew how to win friends and influence people. He had taken the Dale Carnegie course as part of his training. He's 30 years old. He's out not. He's out there in the wilderness. And that's what he said to them. But he knew the error of the Jews. That's why Jesus Christ would say in John chapter 1 and verse 13, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is no racial connection for salvation except this racial connection and this blood connection, that we are blood-bought brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ by the predestinating adoption of God our Father. That is the race and that is the blood that's involved in our salvation, and that's the family that's involved. In John chapter 8, the Jews said to Jesus, as he was saying them, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We've never been in bondage to any man. We are the children of Abraham. Jesus said, if you were the children of Abraham, you wouldn't treat me this way. He said, ye are of your father, the devil. All John chapter 8, verses 31, down through about verse 47. Romans chapter 9. And it's not because they are are the sons of Abraham that they're all the children of God. But the children of the promise shall be counted for the seed. There's Paul bringing it up again in Romans chapter 9. There were some children that Abraham had that were not by promise, but were by fleshly efforts to provide a seed for Abraham contrary to the will of God. Can you imagine a man so corrupt in his theology and his morals that when his impatient, frustrated little wife said to him, why don't you marry Hagar, my bondwoman, as your slave wife concubine and go in and sleep with her tonight and keep sleeping with her until she conceives? What do you think of a man like that? He's, our, he's the father of the faithful. He was going to help God get him a seed. And so does every Armenian pastor think he's going to help God get himself a seed. He's going to get the book of life filled with God's children. There's a new name written down in glory. Oh no, there's not a new name written down in glory any more than Abraham had found his seed when Hagar told him that she was pregnant. Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul will take that woman and her son and draw an allegory from it in 11 verses. And he will say that the Jews that were then alive in Jerusalem were to be compared to Hagar and her son Ishmael. And the bondwoman and her son shall not be heirs with the son of the free woman. Throw them out. We are the children of the free woman, Sarah, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how foolish Islam is? 
There are three religions that claim Abraham as the father of the faithful or the father in some respect. The Jews, of course, claim Abraham as their father. Islam claims Abraham as their father. And Christianity claims Abraham as their father because the Bible tells us to believe that Abraham is the father of the faithful. But do you know what Islam does? They claim Abraham is the father of their religion through Ishmael. What does the Bible say about Ishmael and his mother? Cast them both out. They shall not be heirs with the son of the free woman. They shall not come close to Isaac. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Paul had to worry about this. His reputation was on the line with the Jews that he had to prove himself a Jew. Look what he would say about himself in chapter 11 and verse 1 of Romans. I say then, if God cast away his people, God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham. Paul has to, in the 11th chapter of this epistle, still refer to the fact that he's a child of Abraham in order to defend himself that he is not throwing away all the Jews. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, or, or listen to it from me. 2 Corinthians 11 for four chapters, and bless God for these four chapters that have comforted me this week. Second, where Paul had to waste, waste four chapters of the Bible defending himself. I told my wife on one occasion when we read them together that I wish I could have had the church at Corinth for five minutes to tell them what they had with the Apostle Paul. But then I, th- I said to her, forget it. He did a fine job in the last four chapters of Second Corinthians. He did a fine job himself. He had to defend himself against teachers that were there that were belittling him and his authority in Christ. And so he has to say in 2 Corinthians 11.22, Are they Hebrews? They made their boast of being Hebrews. So am I. Are they Israelites? They made their boast of being Israelites. So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? They made their boast in the fact. So am I. Please let me read one more verse. I just, these four chapters comforted me very much this week. Verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? They claim to be. I speak as a fool. I am more. (laughs) Praise the Lord for Paul. He wasn't going to back down. He said, you have forced me to be foolish in this boasting of mine. But I will do it. And he did it for four chapters. Are they ministers of Christ? I am more. Notice, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I am more. He was the greatest of the apostles and he wouldn't back down. You've got, these four chapters are one fantastic testimony. You don't want a football player from Clemson. You want the apostle of the Gentiles that the Lord raised up in the Apostle Paul. I, I'm, let me chase one more little rabbit here. This church prided itself on its spiritual gifts. Now Paul said, I spoke in tongues more than you all. He was an apostle, and he said, all the works of an apostle were done among you in signs and mighty wonders and deeds. They couldn't touch what the apostle had done. But then he said, let's come to Revelations. One of you had a dream last night? You had a dream last night? I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body. I knew a man in Christ, he was taken up to the third heaven and saw things which were not lawful to utter. You want to talk about Revelations? 
your stinking little dream that you had last night compared to being taken up to the third heaven, I can't even tell you the things I saw. They're not even lawful to speak about on earth. These four chapters are wonderful. And Paul said, lest I should be puffed up because of these things that God has done in me, through me, and to me, he's given me a messenger of Satan to buffet me for my life, and though I have begged the Lord three times to take it away, I still have it. Therefore, will I rejoice in my infirmities. Because in my weakness, then am I strong. My grace is sufficient for thee, the Savior said to him. That's my rabbit. Sorry. It's dead. It's alive. However you want to look at it. It's wonderful in these four chapters to read about an apostle. This is a man who is humble. Do you know how he starts off? I'm sorry. I'm going to chase one more. I see a little baby in the nest. This whole thing starts off in chapter 10 with this verse. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That is how a gentle and meek man who has been put in an office by the Lord Jesus Christ talks when he's forced to it. He hated fighting. He loved peace. This church fought him. and Not not the whole church. There's two categories. You read those four chapters. He speaks in the second person to the church body about a third person, about a third party, not one, but teachers who were among them that were the ministers of Satan. And he's ferocious. And he said, you think that when I'm in, when, when I'm in your presence, I'm weak and, and pitiful, and that my letters are powerful and weighty? Well, when you see me the next time, I'm going to be weighty and powerful, and you can see my authority in Christ. We went to 2 Corinthians 11 because Paul had to make the statement that he was a son of Abraham as well, because the Jews put so much emphasis on that. When you go into Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the Hall of Faith, which man gets the most emphasis? Which man has more verses about him than any other three men? Abraham, the father of the faithful, in the Hall of Faith. When the book of Matthew opens up, the New Testament, the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because he is the promised seed of Abraham. This is how important it is. Abraham was justified in Genesis 15.6 by the declaration of justified in this sense. The formal declaration of it was made in the Bible by the Holy Spirit for all men to read that Abraham was a just man. He was just in the predestinating purpose of God before Adam was created. He was just by Jesus Christ dying on the cross by the faith of God, Romans 3.25, that saw that sacrifice coming and it covered all of Abraham's sins. He was just only in a practical sense by his righteousness being declared by this act in his life. It was 15 years before he was circumcised. It was 400 years before the law came to Moses on Mount Sinai. Let me share a couple other things with you about Abraham so that you'll appreciate him. When you open your Bibles, you have 11 chapters that cover 2,000 years of world history. 11 chapters, 2,000 years of world history. Then there are 12 chapters covering... 100 years of Abraham's life, from the age of 75 to the age of 175 when he died. Abraham was born 2,000 years after creation. And about 2,000 years, I'm rounding numbers, by modern reckoning, before Jesus Christ was born. There were ten generations from Adam to Noah. There were ten generations from Shem 
to Abraham. But I want you to think about this. Men lived a little longer than 70 years back then. I want you to think about it. Ten generations from Adam to Noah. Ten generations from Shem to Abraham. Adam, the first man, and Methuselah, who died in the year of the flood, were contemporaries for 243 years. Shem was on the ark and was a contemporary of Abraham for 150 years. Shem's funeral was 25 years in front of Abraham's. Noah died two years before Abraham was born. There were only two generations separating Adam and Abraham. Do you think he might have known about creation? Do you think he might have known about the flood? Since Shem lived for 150 years as his contemporary. These things are just interesting to think about the world back then because the men lived so long. They didn't have a written word of God. But they had Adam around for 930 years. They had Noah around for 950 years or some age like that. I believe that's correct. Yet the Bible tells us that Abraham and his family worshipped false gods. He lived 175 years and he obeyed God for a hundred of those years after God called him. He left Ur of the Chaldeans. There in the center of Mesopotamia, what we would call Iraq today, when he was 75 years old, his father went with him. He shouldn't have gone with him. And the Lord took him in Haran before they came into Canaan. Terah died, the father of Abraham. He took his nephew in Lot, who was his brother Nahor's son, and they wandered around for ten years to get started there in the chapters about Abraham. He took Sarah in as his wife, who was 65 years old at the time because she was ten years younger than him. At the age of 85, he married Hagar because Sarah wanted him to and because he must have wanted to. And they had Ishmael when he was 86 years old. He didn't get the certain promise that he was going to have a son by Sarah till he was 99. Thirteen more years of watching Ishmael play Little League and go to school and grow up. But he wasn't the promised child. He was the child of the flesh. He was the child of human effort rather than God's effort. They had Isaac when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Five years later, Abraham and Sarah sent Hagar and Ishmael away permanently at Isaac's weaning. Sarah died at 127, so Abraham bought a parcel of ground to be able to bury her in a family plot. And he was buried there. And Isaac and Rebekah were buried there. And Jacob and Leah were buried there. And Joseph was buried there. It's a family cemetery plot. I want you to remember this about it. God said, I'll give you all this land... I'll give it to you as an inheritance. So even that piece of ground doesn't qualify because Abraham had to pay fair market value for it. Because it wasn't that land that was in Abraham's mind or in God's mind about the promises of the land. It was heaven. Which Hebrews chapter 11 declares so plainly. And I hope that you will never forget when I'm long dead and buried that you will never forget that the land was given in a physical sense to Israel under a conditional covenant that they would have that land until they sinned enough that God threw them off it. But the real covenant was an everlasting covenant with Abraham about heaven. And the blessings on the nations are not because we let Jews immigrate to this country. It's because we have fostered and promoted the preaching of the gospel for the majority of the history of this nation. So we have taken care of the true seed of Abraham, who are the believers in Jesus Christ. There is no blessing in the flesh. 
And I'm so sick of it today. Do you know that there is a mad rush in churches back to look at things of the flesh of the Old Testament? They want to learn about the furniture of the tabernacle. They want to learn about the feasts of Moses' law. They want to learn about the rituals instead of the glorious, pure, plain, open doctrine of the New Testament. Even though Paul would call all that stuff back there beggarly, carnal, weak, and everything in the New Testament better. Lord, help us. You know, the Bible doesn't, isn't written in a way that you're used to thinking. The Bible writes about Abraham from 12 to 24 and stops. Then it writes for a few chapters about Isaac. Then it writes for a few chapters about Jacob. But I want you to know that Abraham watched Jacob play JV football. But you don't read that in the Bible. Because of the way it's set up, Abraham gets his chapters, Isaac his, Jacob his. Jacob was 15 years old when Abraham died. But you don't see that connection. I want you to think about that connection. He was the father of the faithful and he lived to see his grandson 15 years old, even though he had him, his, that grandson's father, very late in life. And he commanded his household to keep the way of the Lord because those men coming from him did keep the way of the Lord. The next generation didn't do as well. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis. And, and let the, I hope the Lord can help me. This is a great man that we want to read about. The Bible's full of information about him. He is referred to in the New Testament so many times. Genesis chapter 12 is where we want to turn. And because of time, and because I don't want to make, turn this into a series on the life of Abraham, let's just hit a few of the high points in his life so that we understand in a timeline. I hope I can create a timeline in your minds. I thought about bringing an overhead or some sort of projection to show you a timeline. Because you need to understand the timeline that God wants you to understand. There are dates that are important to shut down the Jewish legalists. And I've already given them to you, and I'll give them to you again. And they're repeated in the New Testament in Romans 4 and Galatians chapter 3. In Romans 4. When was Abraham declared to be righteous, according to the third verse, when it says he believed God? And God counted it to him for righteousness. When did that happen? Chapter 15, verse 6. When was he circumcised? Chapter 17, about 15 years later. When he was 86 years old. When he was 99 years old. And Ishmael was 13. It tells us these specific things. He hadn't even had Ishmael yet in 15. So 15 years before the rite of circumcision was given to Abraham, Abraham was declared to be righteous. Therefore, can you draw the conclusion? Circumcision must not be what makes a man righteous. And see, the apostle uses a chapter out of your New Testament, a chapter of your beloved book of Romans, to deal with these issues. And he knows that his Jewish audience is going to understand them perfectly. That all he has to do is raise the issue, was Abraham declared to be righteous in circumcision? Or in uncircumcision? What was his status when he was declared to be righteous? Can you see the Jewish faces in the audience as they remembered the simplest of historical facts from their most beloved character in one of their favorite books? And it's that simple. And I want Romans to be that simple to you. But he takes a whole chapter on it. But if I lay out Abraham well enough, we can go through Romans rather quickly. I mean, Romans, the fourth chapter, rather quickly. Genesis, 
The last few verses, beginning at verse 27 through 32, describe the calling of Abraham. He's called Abram at this point, and he'll be called Abram until chapter 17. And for time's sake, why was his name changed? Abram means father. He is the father of Israel. Name was perfect, wasn't it? I wonder how all that happened. How did a mommy know that when she had her little boy, that she ought to call him Abram, meaning father, when he's called father for the rest of the Bible? But then his name was changed to Abraham, meaning father of many nations. I have made thee. When as yet, he didn't have his son. But God can call those things which be not as though they were. Romans 4, 16 and 17. I love to worship a God like that, and I love to preach a God like that, that can call those things which be not as though they were. Don't get confused when you read Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. And it says, moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. Those are two past tense verbs. And whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. Because as far as the predestinating purpose of God is concerned, we're already glorified because it is so sure. He can call those things which be not as though they were. Let me read to you Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. There's... There's so many things to be said, but we just need to quickly grasp what is promised here. God had told Abraham, get away from your father's family, these idol worshippers that they are. I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and come into the land of Canaan. I'm going to take you to a place that you don't know, and I'm going to lead you about and take care of you all the way. And here are the promises that I give you. I'm going to make a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your personal name great. You'll be a blessing to others. I'm going to bless those that favor you. I'm going to curse those that don't. And in thee all families of the earth shall be blessed. There are natural promises in those statements. There are spiritual promises in those statements. Without the spectacles of the New Testament to read this, we would miss the most glorious parts of these words. I started off this morning by reading to you Galatians 3, 7 through 9, that says these words at the end of verse 3... In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed, is describing the gospel of Jesus Christ that Gentiles would be justified by the same means that Abraham was justified. The free grace of God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, shown by faith. It's right here. But you wouldn't get it. Do you know how that verse is used? In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed? That if we'll send our F-16s to Israel, then God will take care of America. But Galatians tells us that doesn't have a thing to do with it. It has to do with salvation and justification. By faith, Abraham obeyed God to leave Ur and idolatry. You say, I didn't know he was an idolater. Look at Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 so that you can learn about his family. But he showed great faith immediately. Abraham, sell your house. Leave Mesopotamia. Leave the Chaldeans. 
We're going to go on a little journey, 500 miles or so, into the land of Canaan. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. And he's not talking about Noah, Enoch, or Adam, or Seth. He tells you he's talking about. So it's a different flood. Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. They, plural, the fathers of Israel, served other gods. And I took your father, one of those fathers, out of verse 2, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. When you read the Bible, it can't be the flood that you're thinking of when you read the soundbite, the flood. Because Nacor, Terah, and Abraham didn't live on the other side of that flood. But was there another flood that they did live on the other side of? Yes, it's the Euphrates River. You say, well, is the Euphrates River called a flood in other places? Yes, it's called the Great River. It's called all sorts of things because it was a huge river that separated Mesopotamia from Canaan and Syria. And Abraham had to cross over that water to come into the land of Canaan. Now, its headwaters were in Mount Ararat, where the ark rested after the flood. I don't know if that's why the Lord wants to call it a flood, or because it's one of the largest rivers in the entire region and in the earth. The Euphrates River. That's what that, that's what that flood is about. And we don't want to spend our time there. There's, I've done more on that, and you can look that up just about anywhere. And any Bible student knows what that flood is, because you know it's not Noah's flood. Don't, don't you? Because Abraham, Nahor, and Terah did not live on the other side of Noah's flood. His relationship with God was great from the beginning. God said, leave, sell, and leave, and go into the land of Canaan. And he obeyed. And do you know what? When we come to Hebrews chapter 11, we see that he did it by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he was after to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he was going. So he had faith very early in his life, and so he's called the friend of God because he had a faithful relationship with God. Whatever God did to him in Ur of the Chaldeans, he sure did call him and choose him. And the Bible says that God called him and God chose him in some of the places where we can read about the life of Abraham. From the very beginning, he had many blessings given to him. But I want you to know that the blessing in the last part of verse 3, according to Galatians chapter 3, is justification by Jesus Christ realized by us and claimed and proven by faith. That was the blessing in which Americans in the year 2010 are blessed with faithful Abraham. So that Genesis 12.3 is fulfilled in our assembly this day. I want you to understand that verse and never be led astray by that verse. It said the gospel was preached to Abraham in those words. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. The gospel, what is it? It's the good news about Jesus Christ. Paul started off his epistle by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and its salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Abraham was the, one of the first ones with faith, and he's the one that God pulled out of the Old Testament pages. 
And he's the one God wrote Genesis 15, 6 about so that Paul would have an opportunity to take the father of the Jews' religion and use him against their false doctrine. See, the Lord is able to arrange all the circumstances like that for his prophet. There is nothing else said in verse 7 or verse 5 in Genesis chapter 15 to help us with the doctrine of justification. The Apostle Paul does all that work in the New Testament, but he appeals to that Holy Spirit-given statement about Abraham that God declared him righteous because he believed a promise. God has declared to us and given us the New Testament Scriptures as witness, and world history is not our witness. The New Testament Scriptures are our witness that God's Son was born of a virgin in this world and at the age of 33 was cut off and died on the cross, was buried and sealed and rose again, was seen 40 days by many witnesses, ate and drank with those witnesses, ascended up into heaven. If you believe that, you are blessed with faithful Abraham. Abraham was told, you're going to have a big family as numerous as the stars you can see. We're told God sent his son. You believe that? Righteousness is declared on your account. Most don't believe it, and most don't care. Most want to add to it, and most want to have Ishmael's by their own fleshly efforts. Few want to trust the promises of God and his declarations. Look at verse 7, Genesis chapter 12. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. At first pass, you look at a verse like that, or you let some preacher of Jewish fables take you to a verse like that, you'll say, well, its natural appearance to me is that God's going to give that land to Abraham, and since Abraham never had it, according to Stephen preaching in Acts chapter 7, Abraham never had enough land to put the sole of his foot on. Those are the words used in Acts chapter 7. Since Abraham never had it and God said He's going to give it to him, then there must be a time in the future when Abraham's going to get that land. No, no, and no. Abraham wasn't looking for that land. I know I'm repeating myself. Don't you ever let a preacher of Jewish fables tell you that Abraham, Moses, and the Jews still need to have promises of the land given to them. They received the natural land under the reigns of David and Solomon, who ruled from Egypt to the Euphrates River. From the Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, the dimensions that are given in Genesis chapter 17. But Abraham understood it to be a heavenly country that he looked for. And it was heaven. And it's why heaven is called Abraham's bosom. Because it's Abraham's country. It's the country that Abraham sought. Abraham understood that as plainly as he understood the third verse that said all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in you, not because they have economic transactions with the Jews, nor because they allow Jewish bankers like the Rothschilds family or Goldman Sachs to exist in their countries, but because they have a spiritual relationship to Abraham by faith through Jesus Christ. And if you're Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3.29 This is the truth of the Bible when the New Testament is read without Jewish spectacles on your eyes. Jews don't like the New Testament, so they go to the Old Testament and create all their dispensationalism. C.I. Schofield has built his entire ministry 
on the fact that God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham for physical land in the Middle East, and since he hasn't fulfilled it yet, then there has to be a time in the future to fulfill it. He absolutely did fulfill it, and there are between 20 and 50 references in the Old Testament that says he absolutely fulfilled Okay, where do you go? Does everybody in here know where you would go if you met a Jewish preacher of Jewish fables or a preacher of Jewish fables where you would go to prove that they already got the land? There's Joshua chapter 11, verses 43 through 45. But you know, brethren, I've been converted. I have found a better one. And I want to go to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm sorry, there are 20 to 50 of them. They're on our website. I never want you to forget them. Abraham looked for heaven. How could a man wander around in Canaan in a tent for 100 years when God said, I'm going to give you this land? In 13, when Lot took all the good land, God told Abraham, look to the east, look to the west, look to the north, look to the south. I'm going to give it all to you. You know how Abraham understood it? Heaven. Was it given to his descendants physically? Sure. I'm going to read it to you. This is my favorite now. Joshua is my second favorite. There's a couple references in Joshua. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. Nehemiah is in the middle of a prayer. The Levites are praying. Their names are listed. They're blessing God in verse 5. They're describing His greatness in verse 6. Then they describe His relationship to their nation. Verse 7. Nehemiah 9, 7. Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham. Verse 8. And foundest his heart faithful before thee and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. If any man preaches that God did not fulfill and complete his promise to the seed of Abraham for the land of Canaan, then he is declaring blasphemously that God is not righteous. Because God promised to do it, and God did do it. He's a blasphemer. He's a liar. He's a corrupter of the Word of God. He is a follower of Jewish fables, and not a follower of gospel true doctrine. This is my favorite passage. Because God is righteous. He fulfilled His promise. We were at Genesis 12.7, and I'm going to close. Genesis 12.7, just go back there because I want to get verse 8. Brethren, make sure we understand Abraham. They were appeal- Those Jews thought that they had salvation because they were blood-connected to Abraham. They thought they had salvation because they were connected to Abraham by the covenant of circumcision. They thought they were saved because they were connected to Moses by Moses' law. They thought God was their God only. We want to understand about Abraham's life so that when we read Romans 4... It all makes sense to us the way it would have to a Jewish mind that understood a timeline in their head of Abraham's life. Genesis chapter 12, I want you to just see his faith again. He built an altar in verse 7, 
unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Verse 8, And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. This man was full of faith, fear, and love of God. He loved God, he feared God, and he had faith in God. He had left Ur of the Chaldeans. He had come into Canaan after leaving Haran, where his father died. He builds altars repeatedly. He built one in seven. He built another in eight. He called upon the name of the Lord. He called upon the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D in caps, though he did not know him as Jehovah, because Moses wrote this about him, and Moses was the one that had revealed to him the full name of God, being Jehovah, but Abraham was worshiping the same God, though he did not know him by that name yet. Because Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, God told Moses, I have only been known by my name, Almighty God, or God Almighty, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've revealed myself to you as Jehovah, I am that I am. Abraham worshipped that same God. The reason I am doing this with you is because when we get to chapter 15 and verse 6, I want you to understand that it was not something new in Abraham's life. He hadn't been to a Billy Graham crusade in Genesis chapter 15, and all of a sudden, he laid down his whoremongering and his drinking and came forward and threw away his cigarettes and invited Jesus into his heart. He had been a man of faith ever since God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. But there was that event that only has one verse given to it in Genesis 15:6, because overall in Abraham's life, it's not all that important, but it's perfect for defeating Jewish legalists in the New Testament. And so Paul uses it Romans 4.3, Paul uses it Galatians 3.6, James uses it James 2.23, because it shows it's not by the works of the law from Moses, it's not by circumcision. Abraham believed a promise by God, and it's based on just believing a promise from God that God says, you're a righteous man. That's what we're going home with in a little while. We're righteous because we believe the promises that God has given of His Son Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross, he was born of a virgin, he's coming again for us. And that we're going to live with him forever in heaven. Right. If you believe the promises, you're blessed with faithful Abraham. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.